0: Daniel had just finished the Mass, and his flock was still kneeling at their devotions. Suddenly, an uproar of voices, shrill with terror, burst upon the silence of the town. The Iroquois! The Iroquois! A crowd of hostile warriors had issued from the forest. The priest rallied the defenders, promised heaven for those who died for their homes and for their faith. Then he hastened from house to house, calling on unbelievers to repent and receive baptism, to snatch them from the hell that yawned to engulf them. They crowded around him, imploring to be saved. And immersing his handkerchief in a bowl of water, he shook it over them and baptized them. They pursued him, and he ran against the church, where he found a throng of women and children and old men gathering in the sanctuary. Some cried for baptism, some held out their children to receive it, some begged for absolution, and some wailed in terror and despair. "'Brothers!' he exclaimed again and again, and he shook the baptismal drops from his handkerchief. "'Brothers, today we shall be in heaven!' The fierce yells of the war-whoop now rose close at hand. That palisade was forced, and the enemy was in the town. The air quivered with the infernal din. Fly! Fly! screamed the priest, driving his flock before him. I will stay here! We will meet again in heaven! Many of them escaped through an opening in the Palisade, opposite to that by which the Iroquois had entered. But Daniel would not follow, for there still might be souls rescued from perdition. The hour had come for which he had long prepared himself. In a moment he saw the Iroquois and came forth from the church to meet them when they saw him he turned radiant with a look kindled with inspiration and martyrdom they stopped and stared in amazement then recovering themselves bent their bows and showered him with a volley of arrows that tore through his robes and flesh a gunshot followed the ball pierced his heart and he fell dead, gasping the name of Jesus. They rushed upon him with yells of triumph, stripped him naked, gnashed and hacked his lifeless body, and scooping his blood into their hands, they bathed their faces in it to make them brave. The town was in a blaze. When the flames reached the church, they flung the priest into it, and both were consumed together. Tianistai was a heap of ashes. The victors took up their march with a train of nearly 700 prisoners, many of whom they killed on the way, and in the neighboring forest where the pursuers hunted them down and where the women, crouching for refuge among thickets, were betrayed by the cries and the wailing of their infants. The triumph of the Iroquois did not end here, for a neighboring fortified town shared the fate of Teanastai never had a huron nation received such a blow taken from the jesuits in north america in the 17th century by francis parkman Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to episode 11, The Black Robes. So Caleb, last time we talked about the Dutch and Iroquois interactions and trade, right? That's right. So this time we're going to go back across Lake Ontario and back across the St. Lawrence River and we're going to talk about a group of people that had a very lasting impact on both the Huron and Iroquois. Uh, Their impact, depending on what view you're looking from, can be weighed in different ways. One thing's for certain that their writings, first-hand accounts, give us incredible looks into their culture and religion, and even some major warfare battles. Mm -hmm. And who are we talking about, Caleb? We are talking about the Jesuits. And a lot of you may have, you know, even though they're kind of an obscure group in Catholicism, a lot of you may have heard of them because there was a famous movie called Black Robe, and it touched on some Jesuit priests working with the Huron people in Canada we're kind of going to go back a little ways and find out where these people came from and how they wound up here, how they ended up being the order of missionaries working in New France. Yep. And so at the time of recording of this podcast, the current Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, Pope Francis, is the first Jesuit Pope. Yep. I was actually going to mention that at the end, but I didn't know you knew that. But yes, that's correct. Okay. So we remember a few episodes back, we were talking about Samuel D. Champlain, and how he came over with a few people, and he's starting these these colonies, he actually, at that time, had a few Jesuit fathers with him. You remember from our Champlain episode how he's going back and forth across the ocean. Yeah, almost every year. Almost every year. On his return from the sixth voyage in 1613, he started trying to find a way to get missionaries to accompany him on his next voyage. Like I said, he just had a few Jesuit fathers in New France, but he was looking for missionaries that could go inland. Because, you know, we remember talking about him, how he always wanted to be fair with the Indians, and he had a genuine love for them and wanted to convert them. He gets back to France, and he's thinking, okay, but who do I choose from? What are my options? He wanted somebody that would be well-trained, experienced with it, loving people and people that would be very disciplined, people we wouldn't have to worry about giving them a bad reputation. Because throughout history, I'm sure he'd seen it, you see uh, missionaries go in and they don't re- represent Christianity properly and it just puts a tarnish on it. So he wants to avoid that. Thanks, Cortez. <laughs> <laughs> Champlain speaks with his good friend, Sierra Louise Howell. He was the secretary for King Louis VIII. Howell was familiar with this sect of Franciscans called the Reclex because they had built a compound in Bruyne three years earlier in 1610. So he mentioned to Champlain that they may be worth looking into as, you know, uh, as missionaries in New France. They had a distinctive character that differed from other friars in the sense that they were kind of more like monks, it sounds like. They wanted to focus on having no possessions like other Franciscans, but they also wanted to spend a lot of time in like a retreat setting where they could really focus on God and meditation and things like that. Over time, they became very popular for pastoral ministries, especially among military. So a lot of them became like military chaplains for the French Army. Now, Champlain was influenced by the successful Franciscan mission in the New World and in Japan. At the same time, Japan's a new thing on the market too, and people are going over there. And the Franciscans had very good success uh, witnessing and converting the Japanese. This is 1613, they're just getting back from that mission trip, and they're very successful. So you're hearing about these Franciscans and their good missionaries. But at the same time, the Jesuits in Acadia had recently failed in their mission in 1613 in present-day Nova Scotia. And to be fair, it wasn't their fault. They were overrun by the British. Nevertheless, to say, that their mission trip, conversion trip, was a failure. So you have these two different orders in the same area, and he's trying to pick which people to go by. These are things that might have involved his decision on what to make. Also, here's another one that's interesting. Rumors and controversies between the Jesuit leaders and the lieutenant governor of Acadia were out there involving comments made on the regicide of King Henry IV. If you remember from our Champlain episode where he Mm -hmm. gets assassinated, Mm -hmm. there were some rumors and things like that that You know, those Jesuit leaders, they were involved with the assassination of Henry. Some conspiracy theories. Yes. So this kind of made certain people leer away from using them. Which is interesting because they're all Catholics. Mm -hmm. They're just different Catholic orders. So many things came into play in his decision. But ultimately, since the merchants from the French Society of Merchants, mind you, these are the ones paying Champlain's expenses and transportation costs, they insisted that Howell choose an effective yet inexpensive missionary group for the voyage. And you can't get much more inexpensive than a group of Recolet friars, Franciscan friars, who have all taken vows of poverty. <laughs> so you don't need to pay them much. <laughs> yes, or give them a lot of supplies. So even though this episode's kind of getting into Jesuits, the recollets traveled to New France with Champlain in 1615, The recollect missionaries and the Jesuits were a lot alike in the sense that their goals were the same, but their methods were kind of different in some ways. How so? Well, the recollects believed that the colonization and the evangelizing were one and the same. They wanted to move in these French settlements and uh, work amongst the Indians. And they had this idea where they, we can intermarry and create one town and we will be ministers to the whole town, the French and the Indians. In this compared to the Jesuits, kind of were more realist. They realized that you're not going to be able to get all the Indians to come into your town and in order to properly convert them, you have to go and live in their village. It's not that one way was right or one was wrong, but one was realistic. And I'm not saying that to condone them or anything, I'm saying they wanted to help everyone. Uh, they wanted everyone to live in peace and they wanted to live there among them. So, like I said, they had this idea where everybody could live in the town, intermarry and start a new a new world, a new a new city, a new nation. But the thing is, not all Indians liked the idea of moving into French towns. In fact, almost none of them did. <laughs> uh, this surprise, yeah, su- surprise. So this led them to travel on the roads with the Indians from town to town teaching their faith. This practice was much more successful, and this was a practice that the Jesuit counterparts ended up adopting. So at the time, this is kind of an interesting side thing, but at the time, there really weren't interpreters yet. Did you know that? That well, makes sense. Yeah. You've only been here five years at this point, so there's not a whole lot of people that are fluent yet. So this led to a whole new group like a, a trade profession called a uh, truchments and they weren't interpreters but they were it translates it literally means helper but these were uh young intelligent people from like humble backgrounds that had you know no real trade or anything and they were hired to interpret basically without knowing the language using like mime games and explaining things with their hands so you just found somebody that was pretty smart and good at being animated so they were professional charade players. yes yeah, that's that's basically exactly what it was. but this is pretty cool because uh, like I said, these were people from very humble backgrounds and they were given they were put on payroll by the missionaries and uh, supported financially. you know remember the class system still big in effect in the 1600s, 1700s among the French, among the French and and the English too. but this gave opportunities for some of these poor gutter rats basically to move way up in French societies. There's actually two people uh, mentioned, Nicolas Marsault, and he was granted a lordship, and he worked as just a gutter rat churchman interpreter. And as he grew older, because of the influence he had with all the Indians and all the different priests and governors and things like that, he was so well-known and respected that he became a lord. And another one, Pierre Brochard, became governor of a town known as uh, Brochardville. Well, that's a creative name. <laughs> <laughs> the Red Clicks are working hard here. They're going out. You know, their group is there. They're trying to witness to everyone. And they're doing this for years. They're doing this for over five years. And every year, they get further and further away, and they meet more and more Indians and more and more nations. It's not just the Mi'kmaqs and the Algonquins and the Mohicans anymore. They're, they're meeting all these other people. And they're there, and they're still a relatively small group. So finally... In the year 1624, the French Recollects realized the magnitude of their task and that it was too big for them to handle. So what did they do? Called more people? Yes. They sought other missionaries. They started writing letters back to France, and they set a delegate to France to invite the Society of Jesus, also known as... The Jesuits. The Jesuits, to help them with their mission. Oddly enough, the invitation was accepted, and the Jesuits... Jean D. Brebeuf. Jean Brebeuf. You know, so, since we're doing this podcast, it's really making me wish I took a little French because I feel like it could help me. <laughs> so Jean de Brebeuf, who was the leader of the Jesuits at the time, mm-hmm. arrived in Quebec in 1625. You should probably mention what the heck a Jesuit is. Like you said, they were called themselves the Society of Jesus, and it was kind of shortened down to Jesuit, and it was... As many names start out, kind of a derogatory term, and they just ran with it. But they were founded in 1534 by a guy named Ignatius of Loyola. Long story short, he was wounded in a battle, had some kind of religious experience, and was converted. And so he and a group of other uh, six young guys, including Francis Xavier, who was famous for going to Japan, they founded an order, and they wanted to focus on education and intellectual research, and, yes, missionary evangelization in culturally sensitive areas in a unique way that would be appropriate. They thought that the only thing that needs to be changed in cultures that they go into is talking about the gospel. That's right. At the time, it was still very popular to go into these, I mean, we would call them uncivilized parts of the world and basically try and force them to change their entire way in culture to be exactly like yours and then change the religion on top of that. But they had a completely different philosophy. They wanted you to just change enough where you could accept the Christian faith, but still keep all of your heritage and traditions mm-hmm. as far as it would would allow. Yeah. So they wanted to do away with witchcraft and torture, if possible, warfare killing. But other than that... As long as you you're uh, you know worship at Jesus, we're we're cool with pretty much anything else you want to do, mm-hmm. you know, still be a moral, upstanding person. But you know, we're not looking to make you mm-hmm. all dress up like a uh, little puffy Frenchmen. So the Jesuit missions begin to spread all over the world. They end up in Central America, Japan, India, China, and of course, then they're invited to go to North America. The problem with them was that uh, many people in the government found them to be a pain in the butt. You want to know why? Well, let me guess. The problem is when you have any missionary that maybe actually has the best interest of the people they're trying to help at heart, they're going to do the best to make sure you don't exploit them. Oh, yes, that's exactly what the problem was. Traders, soldiers, government officials were kind of incensed that the Jesuits' crazy idea They thought that the Huron and the Iroquois were people too. And not just people, but equal people had the same rights as a Frenchman, had the same soul, the same characteristics. The only thing they were lacking was education and knowledge about God. They thought other than that, they're a person. Uh, Not only that, um, but they thought that they all were sinners. The French were sinners, the Huron were sinners, the Iroquois were sinners, and yes, even the slaves... So yes, the French did have a small number of slaves there with them in New France, and the Jesuits thought that it was their responsibility to reach out to the slaves and give the slaves an education as well. If you can imagine, this is 1600s. We talk about United States history. The the Civil War is still 200 years away from this time, so this is really way ahead of the time thinking, thinking that Indians and slaves are just as equal as Europeans. And... Throughout history, many times, when, when, especially uh, masters and slaves, they fear ignorant people getting educated because they enslaved them in a whole other way when you don't know how to take care of yourself or how to work your own trade. You become a dependent. Yes. And once you're dependent on anybody, whether it's some derelict brother living in your basement... Or whether Native Americans that are being exploited, mm-hmm. if they're held under mm-hmm. the thumb, well, then you can control them because yeah. they're dependent on you for trade or dependent on you for money or food if you've got them in that dependency mode. Yep. So picture an Indian that can't do math, but then you teach him math. And he can trade better. And he can trade better. Or you have a slave, washes your shoes, and then he learns... You know, how to read and write. And suddenly he's reading about Roman history, all kinds of different European history. Because the Jesuits really had uh, a calling to educate people in their missions, this was one reason w- that made them unpopular. So like you said, the this guy Brebeuf arrived in 1625, and he also came with another guy named Lamont and Massey. And then in 1632, another guy named Paul Lejeune was named the superior, kind of like the leader of the Jesuit mission in Canada. And so he arrived and started going about missions work. Jejun got kind of depressed because although they had good motives out there thinking, all right, we're going to be really culturally sensitive. One of the main things is you got to start learning the language because how can you tell people about God unless you learn the language first? He was a natural learner when it came to learning the language, but people just really weren't interested. Oh, that Christianity, that's good for you, but not for us. It kind of reminds me, there was the, the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and there's the guy, he's trying to get the girl, and he's over at the family's house, and the brothers are telling him all these crazy things to say in Greek that are just silly things, and he's trying to introduce himself to people. and The same thing, the Huron, he'd be like, well, what's the word for this? And they'd teach him some curse word, <laughs> and he'd go out, what's the word for repentance? Oh, butthole. <laughs> I don't know if that was a, an example, but, you know... Something like that. You must all be buttholes. <laughs> Can you just imagine. I'm probably cleaning up the language a little bit. Jejun started hearing about how the Jesuits were working in uh, Paraguay and saw so their model was they started establishing hospitals and establishing actual schools to educate the young people. And so this is a quote he had. He said, I believe that souls are made of the same stock, they don't materially differ. Hence, these barbarians, having well-formed bodies and organs, are well-regulated, well-arranged, and their minds ought to work with ease. Education and instruction alone are lacking." So they thought if they could start educating the young people, they would teach them about mathematics and reading and writing, and also about Christianity. In the meantime, a lot of political things are happening around. Our good friend Champlain died on Christmas Day in 1635. And in this past 20 years, after the Battle of Onondaga, there'd been mainly peace, an uneasy peace, nothing official, but pretty much the, the Five Nations and the Huron French, there hadn't been any major engagements. But now, we're, we talked about last time how the Dutch have started trading with the beaver pelts at Fort Orange in Manhattan, and the Iroquois are starting to get their hands on guns. And so the beaver population is starting to decrease down in the Mohawk, Valley and the Hudson Valley. And so what does that mean? It means raids are going to pick up, starting to find more beaver pelts. And who is the next people north of the Iroquois? The Huron. The Huron. Now, there's skirmishes going back and forth, and the Mohawks send a delegation in 1641 to three rivers in New France, and they want to propose a peace. Because again, we mentioned in the Dutch episode that they want to trade with both the French and the Dutch. To try and play them off one another to get the best deal so initially they come to new france and they talk to the governor Montmagny, who's now taken over for champlain they want to trade with the french they're like okay we're gonna we're gonna do a peace treaty here and we'd like to start trading with you guys but Montmagny says thanks but no thanks they had really grown accustomed to their new huron allies and they thought that if they're making peace with the iroquois the huron that are right their neighbors might be upset with that which is probably the case so the following year in 1642 another missionary had arrived at this time named isaac jogues and he had a lay minister named guillaume Coultier. so he and jogues and another guy named R- rene Goupil, and a group of christian hurons who had become christians through their missionary work you know this has been going on now for close to 18 years and so they have some huron christians and they've been traveling around and ministering. And they're on their way heading back from Three Rivers to Quebec City. When all of a the sudden, they're ambushed by a party of Mohawks. And the, the Huron get totally surrounded and captured. And so is Gupil. But Isaac uh, Jogues, he's hiding in the in the reeds. They're like on a river, and he's hiding in the cattails. But then he feels really convicted. He's like... I can't leave my friends. Many of these Huron are people that he's discipled and converted. And he feels like, you know, Catholics make a big deal out of confession, especially, you know, right before you're about to die, you know, confessing, getting all that sin out so that, you know, when you pass on to heaven, that you can have a clean slate. And so he's like, I got to go back. But we've talked about this in our morning wars episode what happens usually to male prisoner warriors yeah horrible horrible torture on both sides i mean the huron are doing this too and the iroquois but he because he knows he's seen iroquois that have been captured by the huron and what the huron have done to them and so now he sees these mohawk and he's like i gotta go back i'm gonna give myself up and this way i can pray with these huron before they're killed and i can pray with my other brother on uh, and if i die i die so he just walks out and says, hey, guys, hey, how's it going? Uh, yeah, you forgot to catch me, too. And they're really surprised. Uh, but he's still immediately captured, and they start beating the sticks. They rip his fingernails out. They start biting the ends of his fingers all the way down to the bone. Uh, meanwhile, this other guy, Giyume, uh Coutier, he also gets to escape Uh he sees the Hurons, and when he realizes what happens, he flies to the woods. But the same thing, he looks back and sees that uh, Isaac and Rene have been captured, and he sees his two friends, and he also decides to go back, uh, trying to rescue them or maybe even uh, share their fate. So on his way walking back to the Iroquois, uh, Coltaire gets ambushed by a group of five Iroquois men. Well, is carrying a sidearm. And so he just instinctively picks up his gun and he shoots one of the Iroquois square in the chest, killing him. And the other four, you know, Iroquois grab him and start beating him with their war clubs. They take a javelin and shove it through his hand. And so now they've got uh, Coltier and Jogues and Goupil uh, all with them, with the other Huron, and they're doing more torture. So then uh, Coltier, they start ripping out his fingernails and biting his fingers to maximize the pain. They strip their clothes off. They're forced to walk with this party. And this is not a small group. This is like 200 Mohawk warriors. And they're bringing them all the way back. So, you know, this is happening up in Canada and they're bringing them all the way back down. So same deal, same road. They're going down the Iroquois River, Lake Champlain, Lake George, back to the Mohawk settlements. So it's not a short journey. And then when they finally get back, you know, we, we talked about it again, you know, uh, they they just continue to torture them they take out knives and they try to cut off Coltier's finger but uh Coltier doesn't fight back doesn't make a sound and they try and cut his finger off and they can't and they end up pulling it out of socket and then they split him up and Coltier goes off to uh, one village and they they they're really impressed by Coltier he's killed this one Iroquois you know he took torture really well and, um, they stop abusing him and send him to another village, and they end up adopting him out to another family. Well Jogues and Coupil have no idea what's happened to him, so they get sent to another village and Jogues is walking, walking, walking in his wounds, bugs start to get on there, and there starts to be things the you know, worms and maggots are starting to fester, and they finally get to the village, and everything's okay, not so much. They get into the village and they got it all lined up and they start beating them with sticks, making them run the gauntlet. Uh, Not just them, the other uh, Harans that are captured too. And then, then it's okay. No, I lied again. Sorry. So they have this like scaffolding set up. And they put them up on the scaffolding and they've got everybody partaking in the village and they've got sticks in the fire and they're reaching up through the scaffolding and like poking them with hot sticks and burning their feet and making them jump around. And this goes on for like three days. In the meantime, Jogues has his, uh, his thumb cut off. At night, they're taken down and put on the ground and they're like spread eagle, you know, kind of like in Gulliver's Travel, how they've got them all laying down there with ropes. Well, they got them like that laying down. And same thing, they'll send kids by to just throw little pieces of coal on their bodies and they're laying there and can't get it off, just burning them. Horrible stuff. And three days later, they're marched to another village and they do the same thing to them again. And finally, they go to a, a third village. So they're just on a on a tour, a victory tour. Uh, the third guy, Rene, ends up getting killed. And uh, then Jokes is hung suspended by his hands. And uh, he pretty much goes unconscious and finally some Iroquois say all right all right that's enough and they cut him down and he's with them for the next year just uh he pretty much he wasn't really adopted um but he pretty much becomes a, like a firewood gatherer which was like they considered women's work and he was just kind of hanging around they didn't really want him but they didn't know what to do with him and Um, We had mentioned that Huron and Iroquois are close languages, right, Caleb? Yeah, they're both Iroquois languages. If you remember in the the Peacemaker story, the Peacemaker was Huron. So their languages are very similar. They were able to speak and they'd been neighbors for, you know, hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Isaac Jogues here, he's starting to pick up, you know, he's already learned some of the Huron. So now he's starting to pick up the Mohawk language. He's like, all right, he's got this attitude God must have meant for this to happen, and I'm still here and I'm still alive, so there must be a reason. So I'm just going to tell people about God. And through learning the, the Iroquois language, he starts preaching. Nobody really uh, cares uh, about it, but he, he's continuing to preach with the Huron people that have been captured as well, and some of them are still Christians, so he's trying to encourage their faith. And finally, uh, the following year, in 1643, they take Jogues on a trade run. They're bringing the pelts to Fort Orange. And they finally get there, and the Dutch are like, Hey, that guy's not an Indian. What's this European doing with them? And his you know, whor- hands are horribly mangled. And they talk to him, and they're like, That's that's Isaac Jogues. That's the guy that was we thought he was killed last year. Hey. And so they start talking to him like, Dude, we can we can get you out of here. And um, so there was a Dutch pastor there named Johannes Megapolnis and our old friend, Hermann van dergen Bogarts. Was he the pervert guy? Yeah, the pedophile <laughs> that raped his slave. And so Bogarts, yeah, that guy, uh, sees him there and he tries to help. And you remember, Bogarts got, you know, good relations with the Mohawk. And they're trying to be like, you know, um, can you let him go? And the Mohawk are like, no, nah. no, nah. but you know, the Dutch tell, tell him, you know, the father, Jogues, in no uncertain terms, he's like, look, if, um, if you want, we, we can get you out of here. And if I was Jokes, I'd be like, heck yeah, <laughs> let's go right now. But he says, let me pray about it. It's like, what? He really wanted, he thought that, you know, he had been captured for a reason. And he thought that maybe he was supposed to be with the Iroquois. Yeah, this is a decision that comes uh, to a lot of missionaries at different points in their life. Uh, Is this God telling me that I'm supposed to live with the Indians? Or is this God giving me an opening to get away from them for a while? (laughs) So it makes sense that you have to pray for it because he's really trying to do what he feels God's calling him to do. Mm -hmm. So he'll, he'll sneak out of there if he feels like that's what God wants him to do. Otherwise, he'll keep gathering firewood and doing what he can in the village. In the meantime, Coltier, the other guy that got sent to the other village, he also meets up with them in Fort Orange and he's been hanging out with the Mohawk and Coltier tells Jogues, he's like, "Look, you need to go." And Jogues is like, "What about you?" And Coltier says, yo, know, don't worry about me. I'm doing all right. I think that you really need to get out of here." You know, he, cuz he's not being well treated. Coltier mm-hmm. is, but Jogues is not. Yeah. And so Jog says, he prays a night and he decides, all right, I'm going to try and get out. Now, the Dutch can't formally, formerly, just have him walk in and leave. Yeah, and they also can't grab the 10 people they have stationed there and go over and manhandle them away from them. Because they've got trade relations going on and they're living in the middle of this Mohawk region. So politically, this is a sensitive thing. So, Jogues ends up sneaking out while his captors are sleeping. They're sleeping out in a barn. And Jogues runs out, and eventually they have a, sh- a little rowboat waiting for him, and they get him out in a ship on the river. And the Mohawk wake up, and what do you think their thir- first thought is? Those good for nothing Dutch. <laughs> they're hiding him. Of course they are. I mean, <laughs> of course they're hiding him. <laughs> and it always stinks where you're in that situation where you're lying and they know you're lying and you know that they know that you're lying but nobody's gonna call each other out on it <laughs> and so they start telling the dutch like all right this guy's gone where is he and we had mentioned that fort orange is not a big place you know at this time maybe a, a few dozen buildings so uh, they they start looking through all the village, going through the different places, and they're like, I bet he's on that boat. I bet you he's on that boat. And so they get some canoes and go out on the boat. And uh, Was he on the boat? He was on the <laughs> boat. But they didn't find him. And so eventually, that it's kind of like, you know, they're just sneaking him around. So they're like, no, no, he's not on the boat. Well, we're going to come out and search the boat. Get him off the boat. <laughs> so they get him off the boat. The Iroquois come through looking on the boat. See, he's not here. All right. Well, maybe they moved him back to the village, <laughs> and so they go back to the village, and uh, they're hiding him behind like a wall in a basement, and they start looking around, and he's hiding behind some some buckets, and he hides out there for like days, and eventually uh, the Mohawk are saying, "Look, you're hiding him." They're like, "You know what? Can we just give you some stuff, and let's let's just forget this whole thing happened." And so, uh, you know, if you read in the history books, they just say that he was ransomed. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. Pretty much the Dutch gave the Mohawk some gifts to just smooth this thing over and make them go away. And the Mohawk do accept and they leave. Meanwhile, Coltier, this other guy, is, uh, is still with the, the Mohawk and he goes back. Um, but Coltier's back, and so Jogues, they send him down to Manhattan. And then he gets on a ship and heads back over to, they get him to England. And then he takes another ship from England over to France. And they pretty much, kind of like he's a hitchhiker, they pretty much just drop him off on the French coast. Okay, here's France. (laughs) Well, you got to remember at the time, there's all sorts of trade embargoes and monopolies in effect where you could actually be prosecuted if your boat is in a place where it's not supposed to be. And the tricky thing is you don't always know when these laws are getting put into place because they can be being made six months earlier while you're out at sea and then you come in. So a lot of a lot of ship people, uh, a lot of captains, if they didn't have a reason to stop at a port, they might, in this situation, sail by it and put them out in a little boat because they don't want to give anybody an opportunity to ask for their papers or anything like that. So they drop him off on the north shore of France and uh, he walks to the closest town uh, goes into a church, probably like what most of us would do is, you know, kiss the ground because <laughs> you're back. And then he starts asking around. And so he's just by himself, some dirty guy. And he says, uh, uh, where's the nearest uh, Jesuit, you know, grounds, campus? And they say, oh, it's it's down this way. And so he shows up and knocks on the door and it's it's evening time and they're getting ready for evening mass. And he knocks on the door and it's kind of like Wizard of Oz, you know, they're knocking on the door and the guy opens it up and opens up the little the little window and says, "Who's there?" And he just says, you know, "Is the is the the leader in? Who who's in charge here? I need to speak to them." And the guy's like, "You know, we're too busy. He's getting ready for mass." And Isaac's just like, "Ah, uh, I've just come from Canada. I have urgent news." "Well, we can't be bothered right now. He's getting ready for evening mass." He's like, "No, seriously, dude. I've got really important news." And he's like, what's it about? He said, it's about Isaac Jogues. And he said, Isaac Jogues. He said, yeah, all right. Well, because they had heard that he had been captured and probably killed the previous year. You know, he's pretty famous, you know, some guy gets killed over in Canada. And so he comes in and the the leader comes down and says, I've heard, I hear you have news from Canada about Isaac Jogues, And he said, yes. And he said, well, they said, is he, is he dead or alive? And he said, well, he's, he's alive. And they said, well, what happened to him? And he said, it's a me. <laughs> he wasn't Italian, he was French. But... <laughs> and he starts telling the story and everybody's like, oh my goodness. And he starts telling the story and he becomes an instant celebrity. You know, guy that escapes from the Iroquois who are like the boogeyman out there. And so he stays back for a little bit, but then he's pretty much just like, he feels it in his gut, like, I need to go back. He realizes that God has given him opportunity to go back, but he feels like it's just an opportunity to raise awareness about the Iroquois. And so, you know, some people may call it Stockholm Syndrome, but he just looked at it as, you know, we've been reaching the Haran, but I want to reach the Iroquois too. Mm -hmm. And he feels like he needs to go back to Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's one problem. His hands have been mutilated. Yeah, I was going to make that point. Especially the Jesuit order, who, which focused a lot on education. I mean, this guy, his hands are all horribly mutilated. There's not a lot he can do. So what could God's purpose for him be? now that he can't he can't write he can't teach he can't do any of these he wasn't even uh people that had uh severe deformities weren't at that time even supposed to do the mass that's right but Jogues was so popular and the fact that he wanted to go back the, the pope personally wrote a special dispensation saying this guy's the real thing he can do whatever he wants he can give mass he's still good to go And so he goes back to Canada and gets there in 1646. But he believes that he's probably going to his death. In the meantime, back at the ranch, some Iroquois get captured. And the governor in France is like, all right, I've had enough. I'm so sick of these raids happening. It's really not good for business. It's not good for my French people I'm in charge of. He tells some of the Algonquins and Hurons, look, can you give me some of these prisoners? Because I'd like to send some of them back to say that we want to do peace. And they're not really going for it. So he manages to get one of them. And he says, all right, look, please go back. I'm sparing your life. I don't want them to torture you at all. I want you to go back to your people in the Mohawk areas and tell them that we want to make peace. And so he sends them on their way. Uh, a year later, the guy comes back, and he comes back with two other Mohawk leaders, one named Daganawida and one named Koyestan. And also, there was this white guy there who was all dressed like a Mohawk. It was the guy, uh, Kulthir, who had been captured with Jogues three years before. Now, we had mentioned that he decided to remain behind with the Mohawk while Jogues escaped, But he's been with the Mohawk three years now. And in that three years, he was adopted. He learned Mohawk. He was known as a really brave guy. And they made him a council member. Seriously, like one of the Sachems. They made him one of those. Um, As far as I can tell, he is the only European in history to have accomplished that. And he did it within three years. So he's kind of a big deal now. And when this hostage had come back and said that they uh, wanted to make peace with the Mohawk, Coltier's like, we have to do this. And so he comes back and pretty much the Mohawks say, we're giving you back this guy that we captured. You know, he's one of our leaders, but he would like to come back and we'd like to make a peace. And it was decided, all right, we're going to make peace. Uh the Iroquois want trading rights in New France, they said, all right, you got it. There's going to be safe passage. People are going to be allowed. Hurons and Iroquois alike are going to be allowed to come and go in and out and uh, everything's going to be cool. But the French wanted like an embassy. They wanted some people to be able to go live in the Mohawk area so that they could establish relations to go back and forth kind of like the, what they had done with the Huron. And they thought that the best person for this job was Isaac Jogues. <laughs> Jogues did not volunteer for this. Um they they thought it and Jogues pretty much said, "Yep. Okay. I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it because they, you know, they thought, you know, he has learned the language. He knows the culture. And now he's going as an emissary. And so he's going to be sacrosanct. They're not going to be able to touch him anymore. And so Jog packs up and he's still got this feeling in his gut that this might be it. Um, You know, things seem smooth now, but he just has a feeling that he might not be coming back from this. And he writes letters saying as much. And so he starts down and uh, he and this other guy uh, named Laland, who we had mentioned earlier, head down with some other Huron and go and live in a Mohawk village. And he's greeted and there's a big ceremony when they arrive, but he can tell that things are kind of cool, that, you know, they're glad he's here, but they're not glad he's here. And he moves in with the Mohawk and spends some time and begins traveling around to the other villages. However... Things don't last long. The problem with this treaty was, Caleb, you know how they're called the Five Nations? Well, this treaty was only made between the Huron, the French, and the Mohawk. No treaty was made with the Oneida or the Onondaga or the Cayuga or the Seneca. And so what does that mean? It means that they're free to, if the Oneida or the Onondaga want to do a raid into Huronia, well, they've got no legal standing why they can't do that and that's what's happening. Iroquois are still invading into the Huron country and attacking French people and so the Mohawk are still part of the Iroquois Confederacy and so you can see this tension really here. Also what doesn't help is the same year in 1646 the Iroquois send 80 canoes worth of stuff uh, to New France to be traded but when they get there the French um, refused to purchase the furs and they said yeah we want you to sell them to the Huron and then the Huron are going to sell them to us because they don't want the Huron to be mad at them. Yeah basically they made this treaty and then for all this time that had passed you start to get the Huron leaders coming up to you and saying don't you realize what's going to happen if if you just trade with them, how are we going to get the supplies that we need? And then they're going to become more powerful, and we're going to be weaker. So they they nod on their ears for a while, and they said, "Just do like what they're doing." Like the Mohawk was trying to do this with the rest of the Five Nations as well, mm-hmm. uh, where they wanted the other people to come, give them the furs, they will be the middleman, and, and they we'll can, all take a cut. They can get a yeah an increased cut. So they agreed to this, but uh, the the Mohawk. They have a treaty. They're like, no, you said you're going to trade with us. And now they're saying, no, sell sell to your enemies, sell the ones that you know you have all this tension with, and then we'll talk. Mm-hmm. So this is leaving a bad taste in their mouth. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, we had talked about how diseases are running through all native peoples, and outbreaks are constantly happening. And even more so, now that we have more Europeans traveling in, and settling with the Mohawk, more Europeans and more Europeans from different places in Europe. So you're getting, uh, oh, we got the flu last year, but now there's a new flu coming in. So, yeah, and so in the in the town where Jogues was around in Osunarion, uh there was not only infectious diseases, but grasshoppers and caterpillars were eating their corn, and people in the Bear Clan started to mumble. Now, we've mentioned that um, different nations had different numbers of clans. Well, the Mohawk had three. They had the bear, the wolf, and the turtle. So the bear clan starts making some noise. And they start not taking too kind to these Frenchmen. Well, uh, and a lot of it was their, you know, I, I'll say superstition, but, you know, their, we, we looked at the things, the settlers and the Jesuits looked at things they did as witchcraft but they looked at the things that the Jesuits did the same way. They These people show up and they're wearing black robes. And we talked about in the past how bright things, like on the wampum belt, you know, mean the good things in life and the dark things represented by the purple beads are bad things. And so then you've got these people talking about a new God and a new way you need to change your culture. And they're wearing black clothes, which is a bad omen. I mean, to us, it sounds kind of superstitious, but can you imagine if a new people showed up in like a christian culture and they had devil horn heads or like a 666 on their head or something like that and they're telling you that you need to change what you're doing but i mean that sounds you know ridiculous and absurd to us but that's it's really a pretty similar comparison to to the way that their culture worked compared to the new and in the meantime you have the uh the jesuits and the priests they carry They carry all the stuff they need to do with mass. They got the the cross and the altar and the incense thing. They got rosary beads. Yeah, they got all these these strange, bright and dark knickknacks. And they think these might be implements used for witchcraft. And another thing that was happening also is um, Catholics believe in infant baptism. And the Jesuits and the different um, ministers had such compassion that they were worried about sick children dying and going to hell. Without ever hearing about God. And so they thought, well, if we can just baptize them, just sprinkle a little water on them or rub some water on their head, that will be them praying over them and giving them baptism so that they can get into heaven. So a Jesuit sees 10 kids all about to die. So he goes there and baptizes them, and then all, all 10 the kids die. To, die. Uh, to them, it looks like he's cursing them mm-hmm. or causing, you know, in some way causing their death. As opposed to him trying to do... So, he realized what's happening and trying to do something nice to everybody else. It looks like he's... Yeah, there's a story with the Huron where one of these priests is going around doing this. And again, his intentions are trying to, according to his view, trying to save these kids from hell. And he goes into this one house where he sees this little boy about to die. And the person's there like, you better not put any water on him. The Jesuit's like, oh, well, I'm just, just here checking on him. And the guy just like, licks his finger when the guy's not looking and just spreads it on his head, and then the kid dies. Just, that's just their mission, just trying to say that's how they're viewing it, just trying to save these these ignorant kids. Uh, but yeah, you see it from both sides, how one, it sounds like witchcraft evil cursing, and one, they're trying out of the goodness of their heart, according to their view, to save these kids. So Jogues ends up leaving a box behind with some of his uh, ministerial stuff, and they say, what's in that box? And, you know, the Bear Clan think like, that there's witchcraft stuff in the box and Joe goes, oh no, it's just a cross and some beads and, you know, don't worry about it. And he closes up the box and he goes to another place. But then an outbreak happens and the Bear Clan is getting really riled up and they're saying these guys are no good. They are, you know, warlocks and they're causing all this destruction. Do you think it's a coincidence that this guy shows up, and all the crops die, and all the people get a plague. You know, this This is this is bad, bad omen. Meanwhile, there's other Huron there that have been captured and adopted, and they start pressing them, and they're like, what is this guy? And the Huron, you know, trying to not make waves. They're like, yeah, back in our place, these guys are bad news too. Uh, same thing happened to us. People started dying when they showed up. And the Bear Clan's like, see, we knew it. Told you. These guys admitted it. But you only got three clans. The, the turtle and the wolf clan are very more neutral. They're like, okay, let's not make any rash judgments. Let's, you know, we don't know what's happening. But the bear clan says, no way, man. And so they go out on a warpath, and they're like, we are going to track them down and we are going to take care of them. Jogs and Lalonde are heading back to town to have a more permanent presence in the community and they're captured right before it and then they get tortured again. And the turtle and wolf clans are back there in the village, and they're trying to calm everybody down. Hey, come on, relax, relax, it's okay. But the bear clan is like, no. And so Jogs is tortured again, and he's told in no uncertain terms, tomorrow we're going to kill you. And so after a a night of torture, this is October 18th, 1646, Jogs is uh, told that They've prepared a feast for him, which is usually a clue. Sometimes they'll hold a feast right before they kill yeah, you. Yeah, I just think we mentioned that in the Morning Wars episode. And so, um, Jogues goes into a longhouse, and hiding behind the door is a guy there with a metal tomahawk. And one of the other Iroquois follow behind because they're worried that they're going to try and kill him. So remember, not all the Iroquois want to kill him. You know, some of them really want peace and really don't want to kill him. But it doesn't matter. The guy tries to stop it, but he buries the... The thing into his skull and then hacks off Joge's head. The very next day they uh, do the same thing to his counterpart and they take their bodies, throw them in the Mohawk River, and they take their heads and impale them on spikes for their wall around their city. And that was the end of Isaac Jogue's and Lalonde. This caused a problem. Uh, They've ended up killing these guys and so war has resumed. And so within the next two years, um, if you recall the story we talked about from the Jesuit father, Daniel, at the beginning, um, in 1648, on July 4th, the village of Teanastai, And this is like, not I guess village isn't the right term. This is the chief town of the Huron. This is like the biggest one. Yeah, that, that kind of horror story at the start of the episode. It's a true story. That's an actual written quote. Yeah, taken from a 19th century historian doing research on the Jesuits. Um, What had happened was, it was July and a good chunk of the warriors had gone off to do trading, leaving the village mostly undefended. You know, there's still a lot of people there, but the warriors are gone. And so the Huron Huron, get word that there's an invasion. Up to like a thousand Iroquois warriors that are attacking this place and just a few few warriors left and mainly it's old people and women and children and this is the story again at the beginning where the the priest starts doing the mass baptism because again from their line of thinking they need to get everybody baptized so that they can repent so that they can get into heaven turn away from their sins so anybody pretty much says uh guys uh we're all gonna die a really uplifting thing but it was the truth. And he's just screaming out, if, if, if you want to get into heaven, here's your last shot. Any of you holdouts? And so a large group of them say yes. And so he's just going around, flipping his towel, getting the water droplets on him. And then he, he's telling them, you know, run, just run, you know, get out the back as many of you can get away. And he tries to create a diversion. And so that's why he starts walking towards the um, the Iroquois just trying to give him a few precious minutes, just trying to get out as much as he can. And he ends up getting uh, the Boromir treatment, I guess you could say, a chest full of arrows and finally a gunshot to finish him off. And then his corpse is thrown into the burning buildings. And they said 700 people just in this town were captured. That's just captured, not including the people that were killed. And then they attacked other neighboring towns. So this is... This is the downfall of the Huron. This is the beginning of the end. Their chief city is captured. You know, the Huron are not destroyed. uh, But why is it that the Huron are just falling apart, Caleb? Uh, They believe that there were actually more people in the Huron nations than there were in the Iroquois nations. Yeah. Well, if you remember back to one of our first episodes, the first American constitution, what really separated the Iroquois League of Nations, the four and the five nations, or I'm sorry, the five and the six nations, uh, it was, it was more than just an alliance between five nations. They, they literally would go to war together and they would go to each other's defense the, the, the Huron and Huronia had their own alliances with other neighboring mm-hmm. tribes and nations, but they didn't have it to the strength of the Iroquois in the sense that they would fight for each other and with each other. You know, uh, oh, like the Peacemaker story with the, with the arrows. When uh-huh. they're all together, they're strong. When they're all separated, you can snap them. So they're just going around one by one snapping snapping these towns. Yep. One at a time. Yep. And so the following year, uh, in the spring, in uh, March, uh, the other guy we had mentioned at the beginning, Brebeuf, he's in a, another town. And they do a surprise attack and he and another guy, Lamont, are captured and they destroy another village. These missionaries get subjected to a a torture, uh, same as before, and then they kill them on the spot. In that attack, there were 1,200 Iroquois attacking uh, the village. And a few survivors made it to another village that the French had named St. Louis. And uh, in that village, there were 80 Huron that were left left trying to delay the attack, uh, to help the elderly women and children flee. Uh, only three escaped. Three Huron, 400 were killed. The Iroquois, they lost 10. Mm. Uh, the Iroquois have guns. Yeah, I think it's also important and... to, to point out, we had mentioned how the French kind of resisted, uh, a little longer than the English and the Dutch in supplying war weapons and mm-hmm. also alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at this point, you know, th- that might have have hurt the Huron in some ways, not having metal arrowheads and guns and metal tomahawk heads, and or at least as many of them as these other people, which could have really gone to show why they were so much more of a dominant fighting force than the Huron. Mm -hmm. So then um, the Tobacco Nation was another one of um, the Huron nations. And then later on in the year, in December in 1649, there was another irratory attack and another guy named Garnet was killed. And the Hurons start abandoning their villages and they flee towards Lake Huron, which is many miles inland, just trying to get away. There's a saying that they had, they said that the Iroquois were nowhere, and they were everywhere. Just, just the sight of an Iroquois would just throw people into panic. These people now, some survivors have gone from town to town to town, being destroyed, destroyed, destroyed. Uh, and so there's just fear and panic everywhere. And they finally make it to Lake Huron, and there's a, a mission village there, and they try to winter there. But the problem is... These are all refugees. They're just fleeing with mm-hmm. maybe nothing, maybe what they can just carry. There's no food. Yeah. And you can always hunt for you can always hunt for meat, but all of these these northeastern nations, the majority of their food was from farming, as we mentioned. Yeah, they're an agriculture society. Yes, exactly. So uh, you can hunt for meat, but what's gonna happen when you're on just what you can catch and forage as you're walking? Not only are you starving, but due to malnutrition, you're more susceptible to disease and weakness and things like that. And so over the course of this winter, the, just the survivors that are left, half of them die. So we're starting out, they think that the Hurons may have been as many as 20,000. I read 30,000 Maybe 30,000 at this time. And the Iroquois are killing 1,000 in this village, 700 in this village. Uh, raids here, raids there fleeing malnutrition and then you get to Lake Huron and half of you die again and it's just it's a flight for your life and so a small group in this in June of 1650 um, maybe just 300 surviving Huron make the trek back east towards Quebec and they they settle there right outside of Quebec to try and get protection from the French Uh, a few others migrate west outside of Iroquois Reach where they come into contact with other western tribes like the Illinois and the Sioux and they have a real bad time over the next few centuries and they eventually become known today as the Wyandotte and uh, they still survive as a remnant and then these other ones get there but we're talking about hundreds maybe maybe a couple thousand at most left out of 20-30,000. And even those hundreds are are mixed with other people yeah over so there's yeah these the, the Algonquins are fleeing too from all this and so you just all of a sudden all of southern Ontario is just desolate and the Iroquois are able to move in take advantage of the area now for beaver and also have it depopulated so that now just like they did to the Mohicans they've got sole control for trading with the French because again the French still need their beaver pelts mm-hmm. and they're like Now it's us. And the French, I'm sure that a lot of them were sad to see their Huron allies go, but they're there for business, a lot of them still, and best make peace now with who you have in front of you because they're your new neighbors. And also, if you remember us mentioning that uh, the settlers wanted to pin the different nations against each other to get better prices, now the Iroquois can pick and choose Yep. Who they're going to sell to and get the maximum price? They've got the Dutch and the French in their sphere of influence now, and the English at this point. Yeah, you know the the Dutch started giving them guns in mass in 1640. This is ten years later, and they've totally defeated and practically annihilated the Huron in ten years. This is the start of the rise of the Iroquois Confederacy. You're going to see them over the next decades and better part of a century expand and do this again and again to other nations to continue to get the lucrative trade deals, to get the rivers, to get the further and further areas as the animal populations dwindle to start reaching further trade networks. And with their guns and with the supplied people that they start getting in, it's really going to start to change. Another remnant of the Huron so uh, totally shell-shocked from this made peace envoys to the seneca which are the furthest west of the nations and they pretty much said we give up we would like to come to you and totally assimilate with you just please let us live and we'll come and join you because they just they just wanted to survive several hundred hurons ended up migrating down from canada crossing over niagara and coming in and settling in western new york and the seneca were very gracious and actually gave them their whole town, gave them a whole town that they could build and still, uh, they now became Seneca, but they could still keep their, you know, some of their identity. It's not a happy ending, but it is what happened. You know, it's not any different if you look at Roman history than what the Romans did or what the English did to countless other nations or any other empire in history past. People are people. So if if you're going from the Iroquois perspective Things are on the up and up. You know, they're a rising power in North America and they're fastly becoming a superpower to rival the French and the Dutch. So we'll talk more about that next time. Did you have anything else to add, Caleb? Thanks for listening, guys. Please remember to check out our website, longhousepodcast.com. There you go. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we really appreciate it. You have no idea how much just a little comment of encouragement can go a long way. It's true. On And on iTunes, uh, they, they put you there based on your rating, on how many reviews you get. So just getting one a week keeps us like on the top if people are searching for something in the subject that we're talking about. Yep. Also, don't be afraid to, shameless plug here, but promote us. Tell your friends about us. Share our links on Facebook, people that you think might be interested. We really enjoy hearing from you guys. So thank you so much, and until next time, goodbye. See you guys.